In the name of God, creator, redeemer, and giver of life. Amen. Well, good morning out there. <laughs> you might have noticed we have kind of a skeleton crew here this morning. Uh, our snowpocalypse weekend in Portland. Uh, we have only those people here who were able to walk to the cathedral. And so grateful we could muster a, a crew. If you've been following along this morning with the aid of your online worship bulletin, you may have noticed that the heading at the top of the first page declares the last Sunday after Epiphany, not Valentine's Day, which may or may not be disappointing to you. Epiphany, of course, happened way back on January 6th. That's the day when, according to tradition, the light of Christ was revealed to the Gentile world when the wise ones visited the manger. It's possible that you missed it, though, because, of course, January 6th will now be remembered not for light, but for a darkness that revealed itself to the world. But for all the darkness we've been swimming in, the church has been insisting all this time that, they, that we are actually in the presence of a celestial light. For example, the, the past six Sundays, we've been opening every worship service with this magnificent epiphany introit, which is all about that light that shines in the darkness. Arise, shine, shine for your light has come. For behold, darkness covers the land, deep gloom enshrouds the people, but over you the Lord will rise. Shine, for your light has come. During these dark days of winter, these words can warm us against the chill. But I also find myself asking, where does this light come from? How do I find it? What do I need to believe? What do I need to do to bring this light into my darkness? Is it even real, or is it just wishful thinking? Why is it, for example, that on days like this one, days when I'm perfectly healthy and financially secure and well-employed and so very well-loved, why is it that I wake up on some mornings with a sense that there's still something missing, something wrong. Why is it that even on those best of days when everything's fine, I can't trust it? I'm restless. I'm waiting for the other shoe to drop. Why is the ordinary good not good enough? Why is it that as much as I love I feel I never love enough. And why is it that as beautifully loved as I am, and I am beautifully loved, I still long for something bigger, something celestial and luminous and soul-shaking, some kind of deep healing that I can catch a glimpse of sometimes, but it only seems to recede as I approach. Where is this light of Christ, anyway? Some of you know I'm, I'm a huge fan of 
Marilyn Robinson's series of novels based on two pastors and their families that are living in a fictitious town in Iowa called Gilead. Robinson has just published the fourth book in the series. It's called Jack. And on its surface, it's a very touching and lyrical love story. In fact, if you're still looking for a Valentine's Day gift and your beloved is a reader of literary fiction, this would be a great choice. But on a deeper level, and with Marilyn Robinson, there's always a deeper level. Her novel is an extended meditation on the themes of spiritual light and dark. It wrestles with this question, how is it that some people, like the novel's main character, Jack, how is it that some people are born under a dark cloud and can never get out from under it? Jack is an immensely talented young man. He's handsome and well-mannered, musical, literary, keenly intelligent, deeply sensitive and kind, and yet he can't keep himself out of his own darkness. He's been a thief since childhood. He's a drunk, he's homeless, he's in and out of jail. He's a scandal to his hometown, a bitter disappointment to his Christian family. Where does a man like Jack, who is constantly drawn into his darkness, where can he find the light? Where is healing for him when this darkness covers him like an old damp blanket? Where is love? when he feels so irredeemably unlovable. In one of the novel's early scenes, we find Jack and his love interest, a saintly school teacher named Della, locked up in a cemetery where they spend a moonless night walking and talking among the gravestones. At one point she says, have you ever noticed that if you strike a match in a dark room, it seems to spread quite a lot of light. But if you strike one in a room that is already light, it seems to make no difference. It's a fitting question for this day, this last Sunday in this season of light and dark. Why is it the darker the room, the brighter the light? And where is this light? As we get ready to step into Lent, which begins this Wednesday, Lent, with all of its midnight rambles through metaphorical cemeteries, it's fitting to wonder about these mysteries of light and dark. It was during some very dark days that Jesus took his best friends, Peter and James and John, and led them up a high mountain. Like I said, it was a very dark time for them. Just before this, Peter confessed to Jesus that he was the Christ, which set everything in motion toward Jerusalem. Jesus strictly tells Peter not to tell anyone, and then he confides in his disciples, tells them about the cross, about how he has to go down to Jerusalem to be handed over and killed. And Peter can't handle the truth. He says, say it, say it ain't so, Jesus. And Jesus rebukes him right back even harder. Get behind me, Satan, Jesus says. You're setting your mind on human things, not divine things. 
And then he turns to his disciples and says, if you want to become my followers, deny yourselves. Take up your cross. Dark times. The disciples can see nothing but darkness. They're blinded by human concerns. All they can see is death on the horizon. Fear is in their eyes, and everything Jesus is saying seems hopeless and crazy. So he takes them up a high mountain, and there he reveals a light that burns so brightly it changes everything. Where is that light? Some years ago, I was, I was living through a really dark time, nothing like this, this time. And a good friend of mine took me out to lunch and listened to my woes, and she said, sometimes we have to let our friends lower us through the roof. Sometimes we have to let our friends lower us through the roof. Of course, I immediately caught her reference. She was talking about that story in the Gospels where four friends of a paralyzed man are trying to get him to Jesus to be healed, but they can't reach him because of the crowd. So they climb up onto the roof of the place where Jesus is teaching, and they cut a hole through the roof and lower him down into the presence of Jesus. When my friend said that simple little thing, sometimes we have to let our friends lower us through the roof. It felt like a match struck and lit inside my very dark room. There was something in those words and in the way she said it that made me feel loved by something that was far bigger than the both of us. And that was when things started to turn around for me. When we're in our darkest hour, it's the smallest thing that can make the difference. A single match, a simple word, a moment of connection. The darker the room, the brighter the light. That's what happens here in this cathedral, here in this sanctuary, in our prayers, in our confessions, in our friendships, in our loving relationships. In our sacraments, a match is struck. You know, physicists tell us that the nature of light is a paradox and a great mystery. They still haven't figured it out, how light behaves both as a particle and a wave. Even stranger, how photons behave differently depending on how we are watching them. These are questions that the biggest brains in the world have not been able to answer. It's possible we may never be able to understand something as elemental as light. It's like we're dogs trying to learn calculus. Our brains are just not big enough. And so it is with this question of God's light. When we're so caught up in the darkness and evil and pain and suffering seem all around us and we, we can't even imagine how it might be true that there is an actual God, Jesus might say that we're setting our minds on human things, not divine things. 
when we're living in darkness, we see in terms of darkness. When we're afraid, we see fearful things. His disciples looked at the cross, they saw blood and death and failure. Jesus looked at the cross and he saw what they could not. Glory. That's when everything changed. There were many dark days to come for the disciples after that blinding vision on the mountaintop. But through it all, they cherished that memory. They remembered the lesson that it taught them many years later when Peter's own followers, those who knew Peter intimately well, when they were hiding in the catacombs from the emperor's guard, they told this story, the story that they had heard directly from Peter about the mountain and the blazing light. They remembered what he said before he was taken out. We ourselves heard this voice come from heaven. While we were with him on the holy mountain, you will do well to be attentive to this light as to a lamp shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts. Where is that light? You already know where it is. If you don't see it perfectly clearly, if it's not blazing bright at every moment and healing you of every affliction, if it's not instantly turning our flawed democracy into a blazing city on a hill, if we haven't yet arrived, if there still are crosses to bear, if darkness continues to press in, guess what? The deeper the darkness, the brighter the light. The biggest brains haven't figured this one out. The most enlightened gurus still have egos. The most accomplished saints can still be afraid of the dark. And still that light burns. You already know this. You know where that light is. You know how to find it. Set your heart on divine things, Jesus says. Let go of what you think makes sense. Let go of what you think you know about suffering and crosses and darkness. Let your heart of faith do the seeing for a while. Let the light of Christ, which is the mystery of Christ, shine. Arise, shine. Shine, for your light has come. Amen.